History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Gamarjoba, my name is Roberto, and I would like to sincerely thank you for taking the time to check out my podcast, The History of Sakartvelo, Georgia. In all likelihood, I would venture to guess that you found us because you were searching for either podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs about the history of Georgia, or you're hearing this on another podcast, like this one. I'm both sorry and happy to report that this beautiful and fascinating country is, to my great surprise, criminally underrated in the history world. As of now, this is the only podcast I am aware of dedicated to the full history of a nation and a people that have served as the battleground for empires all throughout European and Asian history. But the land of the Kartveli is so much more than that. The birthplace of wine, the second Christian kingdom, the land of fantastic food, nearly superhuman dancers and musicians, and perhaps, most importantly, a people that have preserved their culture, pride, and independence after centuries of one conquest after another. Empires rise and fall, but Sacardvelo always seems to survive in the end. So, let us celebrate this beautiful land by coming with me on this journey from prehistory to the present day, right here at the History of Sacardvelo, Georgia. You can find us on Twitter at History underscore Georgia. Sacardvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. You are listening to the History of Persia podcast. And as we've been hearing from Trevor, the history of the Persian Empire is a story of Persian domination of much of the Middle East and Central Asia. But this was not the first time these lands were conquered, and it would certainly not be the last. I don't want to give too much away, but in the year 329 BCE, the important Persian city of Samarkand in modern-day Uzbekistan was conquered by some guy by the name of Alexander... But what's interesting about this city is that about 1700 years later, this same city, Samarkand, would be the glowing capital of an empire forged by a man known as Timur, or Tamerlane, or simply Timur. And Timur has gone down in history as a fantastic tactician, a man who supposedly never lost a battle, a great patron of the arts, and one of the most brutal conquerors of all time. From about 1365 until 1405 CE, Timur was almost constantly at war, building for himself an empire that stretched from modern-day Turkey to India, from Syria to the Russian steppe, and I want to know how and why this happened. If that sounds interesting to you and you want the story of Timur told by a guy who talks too fast and has loud neighbors, then check out my show, The Timur Podcast. Find out more about it at timurpodcast.com or listen to it in most places where you find podcasts. And with that said, take it away, Trevor. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 109 from Outer Egypt. Last time, we followed King Alexander III of Macedon's conquest of Phoenicia and Syria. Damascus comically fell without a fight to General Perdiccas, 
while city after city in Phoenicia and Cyprus evicted their Persian overseers and surrendered to the Macedonians. All of Phoenicia went quietly save for Tyre, which leveraged its position as an island city-state to put up some of the most fierce resistance of the entire war. Alexander's forces built a causeway, an artificial land bridge to connect the island to the mainland, and besiege the city. With all of their regional allies abandoning Persia in favor of the conqueror, Tyre was lost. Sacked and destroyed, the scars of the battle linger to this day, and Tyre would not rise to prominence again for centuries. Alexander's causeway still connects the former island to the mainland. Now, Alexander and the Macedonians were turning south in preparation for seizing one of the crown jewels of the Achaemenid Empire, Egypt. But there is a long road between Tyre and Memphis, and we've got plenty to talk about before it comes to that. With all of Phoenicia and Cyprus now under Macedonian rule, Alexander had to oversee some transitions in government as Persian loyalists fled from their cities. Most of this went off without a hitch, but one story stands out. This most likely happened in Sidon, where Artaxerxes III's ravaging of the city had left a Persian puppet on the local throne a decade earlier. However, many of the Alexandrian sources list different locations for this story, meaning it is hard to say which is the original version. It's also such a strange folktale-like story that it's easy to discount as fiction. Yet, almost every source mentions it so I will too. See, whichever city this was had been ruled by the same dynasty stretching far back into the early Iron Age. It had been so long, in fact, that a taboo developed around installing anybody without a blood tie to that family on the throne. So when Alexander offered the vassal kingship to the local nobility, they all refused. Thus, the hunt began for a suitably distant member of the royal family who wouldn't have any loyalty to Darius III or the Persian Empire. That brought the Macedonian envoys to Abdalonimos, a gardener descended from an obscure and impoverished cadet branch of the city's royalty. At some point, generations earlier, whatever hereditary wealth Abdalonimos' ancestors may have had was squandered or cut off, reducing them to common laborers, but still, very technically, in line for the throne. Abdalonimos was understandably baffled when a bunch of foreigners turned up at his house with regalia for the city's monarch and proclaimed him king. He knew his royal heritage, of course, but never expected it to matter. Instead, he was elevated to become Alexander's hand-picked vassal and surrounded by a cadre of pro-Macedonian advisors. 
By all accounts, the Gardener King went on to be well-received by his people, noble and common alike. If this was in Sidon, then Abdalonimos was most likely the original occupant of the famous Alexander Sarcophagus, an intricate burial carved with reliefs of Macedonian warriors in stylized Greek heroic nude fighting with Persian cavalry. It is probably best known as one of the most prominent polychrome restorations of the color preserved in pigment traces on the stone facade. That said, at least Diodorus places these events in tier, but either way, Abdalonimos was being proclaimed king while Alexander was busy gloating over the ruins when a Persian messenger arrived in his camp. See, back in the east, Darius III was also quite busy with plans of conquest. Unfortunately, the conquests he was planning were of his own lost territories. Sent fleeing from the battlefield after Issus, the great king was in the most precarious position any Persian monarch had ever found himself. The only reason he hadn't been overthrown yet was probably because Alexander was still on the move, and the disaster in Cilicia had shown the fractious nobility that they were too vulnerable to start infighting at the moment. There were really only two options available to the great king. Negotiate peace and, at best, get his son back to try and reassemble a semblance of legitimacy so the empire could live to fight another day, or gather an army for round two. Of course, preparations for a second royal army were already underway in summer of 332. It just took a long time to summon all of the troops and Darius had clearly had his confidence broken at Issus, because he tried negotiating first. Even if the odds of successful negotiations with an opponent who had done nothing but win, almost unimpeded for two years, was unlikely, Darius had very little alternative on a personal level. These Macedonian savages had his family. He had to try. So he sent Alexander another letter, making sure to use the proper, if unintelligible, title Alexander had chosen for himself. The great king offered the lord of all Asia a deal. First, the Persian treasury would pay a gargantuan ransom for the release of the royal prisoners in Macedonian hands. Darius loved his daughters greatly, I'm sure, but more importantly, Queen Mother Sisigambis, Prince Ochus, and Statera the Elder, primary royal wife, were all paramount to his own legitimacy. The Queen Mother was the highest-ranking woman in the empire. The king's son was the heir apparent, and royal wives had to be securely associated with the throne lest they bear an illegitimate son who could be presented as a genuine successor. Second, Darius would cede all territory west of the Euphrates River. 
a line on the map with a long history of acting as a border both before and after this period. Essentially, he offered to gift Alexander control of Egypt, seeing as the Macedonians had effectively conquered everything else beyond that boundary already. What exactly the plan would be for northeastern Anatolia, beyond the river's source, would likely be decided as an issue to be hammered out if Alex accepted the proposal. And third, Alexander didn't have to give back the entire royal family. They could seal this agreement with a marriage between Alexander and Darius's eldest daughter, Statera the Younger. Here's the thing, though. Alexander had already captured more wealth than any Macedonian king had ever dreamed of. He already had Statera, and could marry her at the moment of his choosing if he wished. And so far, nothing had indicated that he couldn't take Egypt by force. It was an empty offer, and the Macedonian king knew it. So he sent back his response. No, I will take it all, and only accept peace when you surrender, Darius. The response made its way back to Babylon, where Darius had taken up permanent occupation to monitor the war effort, and then mobilization began in earnest. This time, no resource would be spared. Almost every remaining satrap in the empire, whether active or displaced by the Macedonians, Keranos Histospes from the northeast, numerous members of the royal family itself, and a vast host of other highly-ranked nobles were ordered to marshal their forces and meet Darius at Babylon in person. No representatives, no sub-commanders. The fate of the empire was on the line. Persian High Command, forced to abandon Egypt to fend for itself by both time and geography, began sending scouts and considering their options for a picked battlefield in northern Mesopotamia. They also now had a data set to work with and get a sense for Macedon's innovative tactics, meaning they could start looking at exactly what in their arsenal could be used to counter the new Macedonian army. Nothing would be left to chance. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. 
They focus on fast language acquisition without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Back in Tyr, Alexander and his forces were ready to head out. But they were not actually the first Macedonian army to tear through Phoenicia on their way to Egypt that year. Several months earlier, shortly before Alexander's arrival at Tripoli, the Macedonian turncoat Amyntas had fled the city. He ran from Issus with 4,000 Greek refugee mercenaries. The crushing Persian defeat in Cilicia had convinced Amentus that he had chosen the wrong side. But Alexander would have him executed for treason if he tried to go home. Instead, Amentus and his fathers kept ahead of Alexander's advance all the way to Tripoli, at which point they boarded ships bound for Egypt by way of Cyprus. Supposedly, Amentus had looked at the state of things and decided that Darius III's grandiose failings made it open season on Persian territory. After all, if Alexander could just conquer whatever he wanted at will, why couldn't Amentus do the same? And Egypt was looking especially vulnerable at the moment. In the preceding decade, Egypt had gone from an independent state bankrolling the Phoenician revolt against Persia to being invaded and reconquered by Persia to rebelling so successfully that the Egyptians could invade Nubia themselves to being reconquered again by Darius III and now, in early 332 BCE, most of the Egyptian army and Persian occupation force had been slain or captured alongside the satrap Darius appointed, all at the Battle of Issus. The new satrap, Mazakis, was on extremely shaky foundations. Amentus and his rogue mercenary band sailed from Cyprus to Pelusium, the western edge of the Sinai, and traditional gateway, so to speak, inside Egypt. Pelusium was always difficult to take by force, but Amentus didn't need to fight his way through. He just flashed his existing credentials as a servant of the great king, and they let him in. 
With Pelusium behind him, Amentus's army rushed down the Nile, making a beeline for the provincial capital at Memphis. Along the way, he began intentionally spreading word of his plan to oust Mazakis, raising several thousand additional soldiers in the form of native Egyptian rebels, which technically makes this another revolt against Persia, and I will be honest, I've lost count. Satrap Mazakis knew this. Apparently fearing another widespread revolt just as Alexander was approaching, he marched out with the imperial garrison from Memphis and faced Amentus and his rebels. But the thing is, he lost. Mazaki's forces were routed north of the capital and fled back to Memphis itself. However, none of those Egyptian rebels seemed to have warned Amentus that Memphis was impossible to besiege if Upper Egypt remained loyal. That, or the Macedonian rogue, had just ignored the warnings. They did reach Memphis and besieged the infamous White Walls, which, since the Memphites still controlled both the river and the southern countryside, they couldn't take. It was a lazy siege, undertaken by an overconfident Macedonian wildcard and Egyptian rebels who were sure their countrymen would eventually flock to the cause of independence once again. They did not. Instead, Mazakis had an ace up his sleeve. Aminapace, another Macedonian in Persian service who had sailed back with Mentor of Rhodes a decade earlier. He saw this disorder in Amentus' camp and advised the satrap to lead his forces out through the gates while the attackers were occupied, assaulting the siege camp while Amentus' forces were plundering the outer city. They were cut down and Amentus himself died as just another would-be conqueror dashed against the White Walls. Not long after this, Alexander himself was marching south facing no resistance of note, even from Acre, the traditional Achaemenid rallying point in the region. They followed the coastal road, sending messengers and envoys to arrange the peaceful surrender of minor cities, you know, those ones just inland from the coast of modern Israel, that Alexander was confident had no historical importance. Eventually, though, they reached the edge of the Sinai Peninsula, where they found a fortress. Gaza. The formerly Philistine city that acted as the eastern equivalent to Pelusium, a gateway between Asia and Africa. Gaza was under the control of Betis, a local governor loyal to Mazakis, and neither had any intention of surrendering without a fight. The Macedonian siege engines were cumbersome and still slowly making their way down the road from Tyr. But no matter. The king of Macedon ordered his men to start building earthen mounds that would allow them to climb over the walls the old-fashioned way. His engineers warned Alexander that Gaza's walls were too high for this to work but advised him to continue with the mound building regardless, 
because either he of all people could pull off a miracle, or the siege engines would arrive and the mounds could become platforms for their assault. The Macedonians surrounded the city and set to work. Ultimately, the siege engines would arrive before any miracles, but before they could break through, a party of Arab soldiers from the Persian garrison sprung out from the gates and attacked Alexander's command post. In the resulting skirmish, Alexander himself caught an Arab's knife in the neck, wounding and nearly killing him. It appeared so deadly that Governor Batis actually returned to his palace that night to celebrate a victory, thinking he had just saved the empire. They soon realized the error when the siege did not let up. Though unfortunately for the Macedonian king's personal grandeur, he was too infirm when the siege engines finally breached the walls to lead the attack in person. To their credit, the Gazans are said to have made the Macedonians fight for every inch of the city, eventually being cut down to a man before the rest of the inhabitants were sold into slavery elsewhere in the Macedonian Empire. According to Curtius, Alexander seized on the successful siege to emulate his mythological ancestor Achilles taking the corpse of Governor Betis and tying it to a chariot, dragging the fallen Persian governor around the city behind him as he rode in triumph, just as Achilles had done to the Trojan hero Hector. Next we turn to Flavius Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews, for an interesting tale that in all likelihood is only partially true. Josephus claims that while recovering after Gaza, Alexander personally took a sojourn to Jerusalem. This probably isn't true, but it is entirely possible that Parmenion or one of the other generals was sent to accept the Judean surrender around this time, and that he, rather than Alexander, was the original figure in these stories but Alexander became a mythological figure unto himself, and like all good mythological heroes, everyone wanted their own story about that one time when Alexander came to town. In lieu of any other documented version of the story, I'll just go with Josephus here. Alexander supposedly went up to Jerusalem where he had the rare honor of not only being a Gentile allowed into the temple complex, but was acclaimed king unanimously by the city's inhabitants and presented with a copy of scripture, specifically the Book of Daniel. Of course, most historians immediately cast doubt on this, as it is generally accepted that Daniel as we know it was not written until the 2nd century BCE. 270 years after Alexander. However, I would caution against throwing this idea out entirely. The version of Daniel that we know may not have existed, but the first half of that book is made up of folktales about the young prophet in Babylon, which very well could have existed in some form in the 330s. 
That said, Josephus then has Alexander affirm the rights of the Jews all across the empire to follow their religious laws, something which was pretty standard at the time, but contentious in Josephus's day, and a large number of Jews pledging their spears to follow Alex off to Egypt. That latter part does scream of a more flattering origin story for the large Jewish diaspora along the Hellenistic Nile than the more widely accepted and documented version where they were enslaved by Ptolemy after Alexander's death. After that, Josephus actually has Alexander extend his detour even further north up to Samaria, where, not to be outdone by their estranged co-religionists in the south, the Samaritans allowed Alexander into their temple on Mount Gerizim and stressed their own common heritage and right to practice religious law with the Jews. Only then does Josephus allow Alexander to actually go to Egypt. Yet, before we follow the Macedonian army south, it is worth swinging up north again, because wouldn't you know, you can't actually conquer everything west of the Euphrates in just a handful of well-placed battles. The local Persian loyalists were still fighting back, even as imperial leadership withdrew more and more support from their cause. We don't really get much detail here, and Curtius is the only ancient source that even references some of these events, but they are worth pointing out, if only to dispel the popular idea that Alexander faced minimal resistance. The Spartan revolt in Greece was still ongoing, but would wrap up by the end of this episode, and despite the religious holiday of the Isthmian Games in Corinth, Antipater did his duty as regent of Macedon and marched against the Lacedaemonians once again to continue that war. In Anatolia, Paphlagonia rebelled in the north, a subregion of Cappadocia called Laconia, rebelled in the southeast, and Miletus, of course, revolted in the west. They were all defeated by minor Macedonian generals who had been left behind for this exact reason, but it is interesting to note that the Milesian rebels were led by a Persian called Idarnes, plausibly one of the few remaining Hidarnids hanging around in the area. By the time all of this was settled, though, Alexander really was headed for the Nile. After all the Egyptian wars we've covered on this show, you might expect this to be the fight of his life. It was not. In the aftermath of Artaxerxes III's reconquest and the rebellions of Kabash and Amentus, the Persians now refused to arm the local Egyptian militia, for fear of them turning against the satrap. This concern was well-founded, but greatly diminished the number of soldiers available for Mazaki's defenses, a situation made worse by massive losses suffered by the Egyptian occupation force at Issus. So when Alexander arrived at Pelusium, not only was his supply fleet safely anchored along the coast, but the gates were already open. 
long the greatest obstacle to an eastern army approaching the Nile Delta, Alexander garrisoned the city without a fight. The fleet entered Egypt through the Pelusiac mouth of the Nile, and shadowed the army as the Macedonians went down the eastern side of the delta, reaching Heliopolis at the southern end of the Pelusiac branch without any opposition. In fact, Alexander was welcomed with general support by the Egyptian populace, eager for someone who would help them evict the Persians, even if it was another foreign conqueror. They crossed the river just south of Heliopolis to make their approach on Memphis and found no archers on the fearsome white walls, no ships blocking the river approach, and the gates unbarred. As it turns out, Aminipes, the Macedonian advisor to Satrap Mazakis, was a childhood friend of Alexander and between the native uprising that had followed Amyntas and Alexander's surprisingly quick siege at Gaza, Amenopeus counseled the Persian in his charge to stand down. Mazakis became the only major satrap to wholly surrender to Alexander, handing over rich, ancient, and powerful Egypt without a fight. The Macedonian monarch garrisoned Memphis, accepted the general surrender of the Persian forces there, and held some receptions to meet with and confirm or replace many local leaders from southern and central Egypt. While there, a new wave of reinforcements and fresh recruits arrived from Europe alongside a few additional commanders who Alexander stationed up and down the Nile Valley everywhere from Elephantine in the far south to Topanes, aka Daphni, in the northeast, securing Macedonian control over Egypt. Curtius and Arian give a different order of events for what came next, both make sense from different perspectives. However, I'm going to go with Arian here just because it keeps us on theme before slightly switching topics. Once Memphis was settled, Alexander turned north again, not to leave, but to head up the northwestern side of the Nile Delta. This served two purposes. One, to make sure his travels allowed the Macedonians to occupy the entire fertile triangle that makes up the northern third of the country, and to get the lord of all Asia himself to the city of Canopus on the edge of the western marshland. The story of Alexander's time in Canopus and his reason for traveling there were heavily mythologized and tied up in prophecy over the centuries, in a way that the surviving Alexandrian histories barely even mention practical reasons for making the trip. But we know better. 109 episodes into the history of Persia, and the western Egyptian marshes should at least be familiar to you. This region was the stronghold of the Libyan clans and Egyptian rebels that have hounded Persian rule since its inception. Almost every major revolt against Persian authority originated from this region. So for Macedon to securely occupy Egypt, 
Alexander needed to make arrangement with these marshlanders. Arian even briefly mentions Alexander dining with unspecified chieftains in Canopus, lending weight to this interpretation of events. Canopus, as it happens, was just south of a large lake, basically a salty pool cut off from the Mediterranean by a thin strip of land to the north. And just off the edge of that strip of land was an island called Pharos. Well, upon looking at this deep lake, that island, and the very thin strip of land separating the two, Alexander supposedly had a moment of divine inspiration, or remembered a prophecy that his soothsayers had come up with, depending on the version of the story. That thought? This would be a great place to build a new city. Now here's the thing. This was, in fact, a terrible place to build a new city. Marshy terrain, minimal population, tons of established cities nearby. The geography did lend itself to the creation of a harbor, but that only really makes sense if you don't have many existing harbors and a massive navigable river already accessible, which Egypt, of course, does. It's easy to see the city that Alexander sketched out excitedly that night in great detail while staying at Canopus as a crazed vanity project. Or, if you lack all of this context, as building a great port out of nothing. But of course, ancient Egypt can hardly be seen as from nothing. However... Buried in the details of two centuries of Perso-Egyptian history before this lies a very good reason. To build a city on this land, Alexander's workmen would have to drain the marshes and clear the terrain, and establishing a major political and economic center of purely Macedonian make in northwest Egypt would establish a point of military and political readiness in the area. After hundreds of years of Persian struggles against the swamp pharaohs of the northwestern delta, Alexander the Great was planning out a project that would permanently nullify their capacity to rebel or resist foreign occupation. And of course, any good city needs a name, and this city was intended as a celebration of all Alexander's fantastical achievements up to this point. So the choice was obvious, if a bit vain. This would become Alexandria. Again, Alexander became a mythological figure in his own right, and other cities that were conquered earlier and renamed later would eventually try to claim that no, no, they were renamed in the conqueror's honor first. But by all indications, Alexandria near Egypt was the first city to bear that name. However, it did give the king a taste for the idea, and he would go on to found and rename many, many cities in his own honor, and the honor of his fallen companions. Work began almost immediately, but like Rome, Alexandria was not built in a day. 
And in fact, it wouldn't really become a city in Alexander's lifetime. So for now, we're moving on. It is really just rubbing salt in the wound at this point, but can you imagine the frustration of the Persian government with this turn of events? The Egyptians who had so thoroughly resisted their rule for 200 years, their seriously light-handed, freewheeling foreign rule, welcomed a different foreign overlord with open arms. Perhaps the Egyptian elite thought they'd have a better chance against this younger, less established empire in the long run. Maybe they didn't care about Alexander at all and just wanted Persia to lose. Or maybe, just maybe, they welcomed the return of a god-king. Sure, the Persian kings had often put on the symbolism and titles of Egypt's semi-divine pharaohs, at least nominally believed to be literal incarnations of the god Horus on Earth, but the king of kings never truly portrayed themselves as divine. It went against their own beliefs and principles. Alexander, on the other hand, held no such caution. Not only did he claim that he was descended from Zeus, king of the gods, twice over, but he had also begun suggesting that he may just be the direct son of Zeus himself, rather than Philip. After this trip to the north, or immediately before it, according to Curtius, Alexander just couldn't shake this sense of glorious purpose and divine heritage. He needed to know for sure if he was a demigod or not. So he consulted his newly acquired Egyptian advisors, and they told him the best source of information would be the oracle of their god, Amun, in the Siwa Oasis, some 600 kilometers west of the Nile, deep in the Libyan desert. So off he went, taking his Hatairoi and favored commanders with him. I do wonder if any of them had read Herodotus and spent the whole trip thinking about how Cambyses supposedly lost an army to a sandstorm on this same route. But lucky for them and unlucky for Darius, the desert did not swallow the Macedonians. Instead, they arrived at Siwa, and Alexander consulted the oracle, which proclaimed him a true son of the horned god Amun, which led Alexander to portray himself with horns on most of his coinage after this point. And Amun was indeed equated with Zeus by the Greeks. Alexander, son of Zeus Amun, king of Macedon and lord of all Asia, was able to return to the Nile along with his rapidly growing ego and ambition. After visiting the oracle at Siwa and being proclaimed the son of the king of the gods in the eyes of Greeks and Egyptians alike, Alexander went back to Memphis where he did the decidedly ungodly job of administering his empire between winter of 332 and early 331. 
Various Macedonian notables and Persian turncoats were appointed to positions of power. According to Curtius, he desperately wanted to make a trip up the Nile during this time to visit what the Greeks called Ethiopia, or more accurately, Nubia, in search of fabled locations from myth and legend like the palace of the Trojan war hero Memnon. Unfortunately for the Persian Empire, Alexander recognized that time was of the essence. So after appointing a Macedonian called Apollonius as governor of Libya, the army began preparing to move out, but while they were sailing north, Alexander received double bad news. His close friend Hector, one of Parmenion's sons, had his ship capsize in the Nile and drowned. Simultaneously, they found out that Samaria had gone into revolt, a possibility that Josephus retroactively alluded to in his story of Alexander visiting the city. The occupation commanders left in Judea were perfectly capable of handling this and did so by mid-331, but it was just another frustration in Macedonian eyes. Still, Alexander pressed on, marching all the way back to Tyre, where the main army was met by the fleet, carrying more reinforcements, gathered not just from Europe, but by now all of the recently conquered territory. While there, Alexander took a moment to assess his officer corps, recalling occupation governors from areas like Lydia that had mostly been settled to rejoin the fight on the front lines, and cycling out others to take their place on administrative duty. One of the most notable promotions during this shakeup was promoting Ptolemy, son of Lagos, hero and butcher of the Siege of Halicarnassus, to a position in the Hatairoi. With the new army now organized just the way he wanted it, they began the march north through Phoenicia and into Syria, eventually following the royal road toward the Euphrates for their eastward campaign into Assyria and Babylonia, marking the first time a foreign enemy had ever penetrated the Persian heartland. As they approached the city of Thapsacos, the same place where Cyrus the Younger had crossed almost 70 years earlier to the day, they expected a fight. The satrap of Babylon, Mazaios, had been stationed there for months, guarding the bridges that crossed the Euphrates, but he withdrew his forces just as Alexander arrived. Why, you ask? Because Mazaios had finally received the updated orders you have to assume he was hoping for. Fortified as Thepsakos might have been, he was only in command of 10,000 men, and they could not withstand a Macedonian siege. Fortunately for him, Mazaios would live to fight another day. Darius sent word that the royal army was ready, and a battlefield in northern Mesopotamia was now being prepared for Alexander's arrival. So he withdrew, ceding Thepsakos to Macedon, and rallying with the main Persian army at an old Assyrian city to the south. This was Arbailu, Arbella to the Greeks. 
or Erbil, in modern Iraq. It had seen many empires rise and fall since it first appeared around 2300 BCE, but the Battle of Arbella is better known by another name, possibly taken from a stable or way station that was closer to the actual battlefield. It is known as the Camel House, or to put that in Greek, Galgumela. But that will be next time. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon. Also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.